everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin and the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O, and you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Justin Bizarro, and you can find this podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Justin and the Food Entrepreneur's. So thank you, everyone, for signing up for the summit in Milledgeville, Georgia on June 3rd and 4th, um, the summit being the Food and Beverage Entrepreneur Summit. Tickets are still available on Eventbrite for free, so please keep looking there if you're interested in going. If the event ends up being canceled because of the current pandemic that's going on, we will still do it online through Facebook and YouTube and stream it to everyone who has purchased or registered for uh, the free tickets. Today I have with us uh, a new co-host, Megan Tyrion. How are you doing today, Megan? I'm doing well. Thanks, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And for the audience, Megan is the Director of Procurement and Sustainability at Food Service Partners, so I thought this would be a great episode for seeing that today we're interviewing Will Harris of White Oak Pastures from Bluffton, Georgia. How are you doing today, Will? Doing good, Justin. Thank you for having me on. Uh, You're welcome. Uh, So, Will, tell us a little bit about your background and how you sort of created this new um, way of farming that you guys have are doing on White Oak Pastures? Well, uh, I, got, I own a farm called White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. And uh, I guess the thing that I enjoy most about the farm is how during the 153 years that my family has owned it, it's come really full cycle. My great-grandfather came here in 1866, and he was followed by his son, my grandfather. He was followed by his son, my father, and I took over the farm in 1976. I graduated from the University of Georgia, College of Agriculture, came home and ran the farm uh, as my father had, as a very industrial centralized, commoditized, monocultural cattle operation. And I ran it that way for 20 years. In the mid-90s, I started uh, looking at things differently and changed the way. uh, Basically, I was farming a lot and not enjoying it as much. So I started moving away from the commodity system. And today... We uh, pasture-raise five different red meat species, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand butcher them in a USDA-inspected processing plant that I built here on the farm. We pasture-raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks, and we hand butcher them in a separate USDA-inspected processing facility that I built here on the farm. In addition, we raise uh, organic vegetables, pasture eggs, honey. Uh, we sell uh, pet treats and leather products and a lot of other little ancillary businesses that come from the, the production system that we call white oak pastures. 
So that being said, Will, I mean, how did you, I mean, where was the light bulb that went off that, I mean, explain to us a little bit the thought process, because obviously there was a light bulb moment where you're like, I need to stop being monocultural and I need to transition into this sort of full circle farming, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had a better story to tell you about that. I wish I could tell you that I saw a bird in the bush and God spoke to me, but that, that wasn't exactly how that was. Uh, uh, mostly it started, it started for me with animal welfare. Uh, I thought the 20 years that I farmed industrially that my animal welfare was great. I thought it was fantastic, but, uh, and, and, and good animal welfare in that era, and for many people even today, means you keep the animals well-fed, watered, in a comfortable temperature range, and you don't intentionally inflict pain and suffering on them, and that's good animal welfare. But really, it's not. And I became sensitive to the fact that Good animal welfare means those things and allowing the animal to express instinctive behavior. You know, cows were meant to roam and graze. Pigs were meant to root and wallow. Chickens were meant to scratch and peck. And in an industrial confinement system, those behaviors aren't possible. So I started moving in the direction of better animal welfare and from that, the the uh, condition of the land kind of came neck up next on my on my screen, and then we start. So we changed the way we farmed the land, managed the land, and then the the in doing that, the little rural community of Bluffton, Georgia, that I live in, that, that my my farm surrounds Bluffton, uh, became. Uh, relevant again, and that has become important to me. So our our three basic tenets are compassionate animal welfare, regenerative land management, and the rebuilding uh, of this rural community. So I love that. So, I mean, Will, let's really dive in, and I'm, I'm sure Megan has some questions too, so I'm going to let Megan ask the next question after this. But, I mean, sort of talk about the process and how you do all that. How does it all connect? How, I mean, what animals rotate in what direction, um, as well as how does that affect the fruits and vegetables you're talking about, as well as the bees? So, I mean, I really want to get into the whole concept from a greater scale of how all these pieces work together because I don't think the audience truly understands what it means to have regenerative farming with the land and how that matches with the the animal husbandry. And so, I mean, what does that mean and and how does it sort of come together on your farm um, with the animals and the rotation of the animals? All right, let me, in answering that, let me kind of start from the back end. Uh, you know, when nature is left to itself, it produces an abundance. You know, that's how we got uh, reserves of energy in, under the surface of the land. The, the oil and the gas and the coal are energy that have been produced through millions of years 
by the cycles of nature. The cycles of nature yield an abundance. And the cycles of nature are the energy cycle from the sun, the water cycle with precipitation and rain, the mineral cycle, minerals in the earth, the carbon cycle, greenhouse gases producing organic matter in the soil, the microbial cycle, the grazing cycle, many, many, many different cycles that when uh, left unbroken operate in symbiotic relationships with each other and it yields an abundance. There's, there's just more here every day because the cycles generate the abundance. So that, and that's, that's the way the earth evolved. That's why it moved from being a, a dead rock to be in this planet, this teeming with life. A, a brown, gray, black rock with a poisonous atmosphere, ice on one side, vapor on the other. And through the cycles of nature became this beautiful blue, white, green planet that yields an abundance. Now, what happened was the puniest species on the face of the earth, that would be we humans, used technology to become powerful enough to break the cycles of nature. We developed cultivation of the land. We developed pesticides. We developed chemical fertilizers. We uh, forced monocultures. You know, in, in nature, a monoculture exists nowhere. It doesn't exist. It doesn't happen. Nature abhors a monoculture. Nature abhors many different species living in symbiotic, symbiotic relationships with each other, yielding the abundance. That's the only true form of wealth. Money is not wealth. So when we humans developed those tools that I mentioned, uh, we started degrading the earth. And all we did, all I did, was emulate nature, biomimicry. Just started to do things more like nature was doing them before we humans started the degradation, degradation process. And it worked. And, and this was, you know, I started 25 years ago. And at that time, there were no podcasts telling you how to do it, no books, no, you know, certainly the universities were not teaching that, still aren't. And it was just a matter of figuring it out. And that mostly came from, again, studying nature and mimicking it. And so, okay, so you've you've taken this concept, and I want Megan to ask a question, but I want to take it a little bit further also, so sorry about that, Megan. But now, how do you recreate that cycle on your farm? I mean, so I understand the way nature does it um, and the abundance. So how are you creating that same abundance on your farm with the animals? I mean, like really dive into the details of how you rotate the animals, for example, if if you're comfortable talking about that. Oh, yeah, I'm perfectly comfortable. It's just a very big topic, and I don't think we can get into, and we can't get into the nuances because it's just a really big topic. But let me give you uh, probably the most obvious examples. So 
the truly great uh, productive fertile lands of the earth would be, say, the uh, uh, American Great Plains, the Serengeti uh, Plains of Africa. Uh, we might even throw the tundra in there uh, in its own way. And those ecosystems, and that's an important word, those ecosystems existed, those cycles that we discussed were persisted persisted by great herds of herbivores pursued by predators, giving the land a very hard animal impact, but then with a very long recovery time. Think about buffalo being moved by wolves. Think about uh, gazelles and wildebeest being moved by lions. Think of uh, caribou being moved by polar bears. You know, the, 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 those are prey, those herbivores are prey animals. The, the animals that are moving are, are predators. And the defense that those prey animals have from the predators is to bunch up and stay, say, in a tight group. So they would move across the landscape, being moved probably slowly by the predators, and predators would occasionally take a old or weak or crippled or very young animal, but they would keep the herbivores bunched up. And those herbivores would really have a, a huge animal impact on the land. They would eat all, almost all the grass and forbs. They, those cloven hooves would push the residue into the soil, a lot of urination, a lot of defecation, hard animal impact. And for those herbivores may not come through that piece of real estate for a year, maybe two years, who knows, a long time. And that would give those plants a chance to fully recover. Recovering, breathing in greenhouse gases, pushing it under the surface of the soil in the form of roots, uh, uh, microbes, tearing down rocks one molecule at the time and feeding it to the roots in return for exudates or sucrose carbohydrates the root would secrete chemical uh, swap. Uh, it's, 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 it's a beautiful thing. And again, it generated, that's how we got all that energy under the surface of the earth. And, you know, we broke those cycles. And the, the animal husbandry that I was taught at the College of Agriculture at the University of Georgia in uh, the 70s was very different from that uh, uh, ecosystem that I just described to you. And, and it's because uh, we, sci reductionist science, developed tools to uh, really increase production of crops and animals in the short term, but it had horrible unintended consequences. And we didn't, and those unintended consequences were unnoticed consequences. And it took uh, a long time, 75 years maybe, 
for the, for it to become obvious. Megan, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Many questions. It's it's very interesting hearing you speak. Well, you're you're just as much, if not more, an ecologist as you are a rancher, and it's it's fascinating to hear that. And even with with everything that you're doing and today and how you've evolved, I'm curious what one of the first steps were that you took to, to start this path. Yeah, for for me, the uh, you know the move from very industrial commodity producing centralized agriculture uh, was animal welfare. That was the uh, kind of the canary in the coal mine. Uh, I thought that our I previously believed that our animal welfare was was really 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 good. At that time, I believed, and, and most many many producers still believe that good animal welfare just means you keep the animal uh, in a fed, well-fed, watered in a comfortable temperature range. You don't intentionally inflict pain and suffering on the animal, and that's good animal welfare. But I came to realize in the mid nineties that no, it's really not. You've got to do all of those things. But in addition, you've got to give the animal the opportunity to express instinctive behavior. You know, cows need to roam and graze. Hogs need to root and wallow. Chickens need to scratch and peck. But an industrial confinement system, the way that 90-whatever percent of the meat and poultry we eat today in this country is raised, does not accommodate that expression of instinctive behavior. And I started making that available to them. And and also that, uh, and, and that led to uh, my understanding that we were mistreating the soil and the water. And that led to my, so we started regenerative farming practices, and that led to our little town of Bluffton, Georgia, becoming relevant again. That led to a lot of economic prosperity for the residents here, and that became the third passion of mine. I did see on your on your website you have you have quite a staff today. How, what did you start out with when you first started running the farm? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked me that. One of the things that I uh, I usually don't think to talk about, but I think it's important when it's brought up, is the economic impact of what we've done here. <clears throat> when I started changing this farm, I had three minimum wage employees and was marketing about a million dollars worth of live cattle a year. Uh, today, we're the largest private employer in the county. We've got about 160 employees that make uh, almost twice the county average per year. And, uh, and you know, we, it, it, we, it's, it's really made the this economically impoverished little town that had become a ghost town is is really important. And we've got a, you know, we've built, White Oak Passes has built a restaurant and a store cabins for lodging 
and a uh, shop where we make candles and tallow and leather products and pet shoes. We renovated about a dozen houses for employees that were, were you know, had been just left for nothing. Uh, we've renovated a, uh, the defunct Methodist Church as our administrative offices. The old one-room courthouse is my office. Just a, a lot, a lot, a lot of changes, and I'm really proud of the little town. And it was sinking into oblivion like all the rest of the little towns in rural America that that hadn't become gentrified. And yeah, so, that's remarkable to hear. That has such a dramatic impact on both small towns and large towns to be able to have truly sustainable careers for families that they can live their best lives on while also preserving the land in that area to, just like you said, prevent further gentrification. And can, I, can, I, can I come in on that just for a minute? I, I, I want to... I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about what we've done, and, and I want to call your attention to the fact that the progress we've made in Bluffton, Georgia, was done by a C, proud C student with bank debt, not a, not a Rhodes Scholar with a trust fund. And I bring that up to say that what we've done here is not highly scalable. White Pastures is probably about as big as we need to be. We, we, we probably wouldn't gain much by growing bigger. But it is highly replicatable. And there could be one, and it should be, one or two or three White Oak Pastures in every ag county, agricultural county, in the country. And if it was, we would have... Uh, a smaller dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. We'd have clearer streams and lakes. We'd have uh, uh, topsoil that, again, had organic matter and was teeming with life. We'd have a lot less uh, carbon in the air. Uh, there's a, you know, remind me to tell you in a minute about our negative carbon footprint. There's a, just a lot of good things that would happen by the re-enrichment of rural America through farms like White Oak Pastures. And by the way, let me say this. White Oak Pastures is not the only farm in this country that's done this. Uh, uh, I'd like to say there's thousands, but there's not. But there's at least dozens. Uh, a guy named Gabe Brown in Bismarck, North Dakota. A guy named Spencer Smith in Nevada, a guy named uh, Blake Angela in uh, California, a uh, guy named Greg Gunthorpe in Indiana, and I can go on and on. So this is not a one-off kind of deal. This is something that can be done by very uh, average people that, that don't, don't necessarily have a lot of money. And Will, I want to actually touch on something you said, and I want to get into the negative carbon footprint. But one of the things, and I really want to highlight because this is a, po a podcast for also for entrepreneurs, is that a couple of things that you said. One is that 
you did it in the 90s. That meant you were most likely in your 40s when you decided to transition your business. And so you sort of were a late bloomer to this whole thing. You did it later in your life, if you want to call it that. Um, um, you were still young then. But it's one of these things where it's never too late to pivot your business and to do the right thing. And that's what you did. And not only by doing the right thing, you've developed this huge business that employs a lot of people. And not only that, supports your whole community. And I'm sure in a lot of other ways, creates um, indirect jobs in your community as well. So I think that that's one of the important things. The other important thing I feel like is that you were committed to do it once you did it and you went all in. It wasn't like you just dabbled in it. You sort of, you decided you were going to change your practices and all these years later you've done it and you've gotten to do many things with that as an entrepreneur. You've been able to give to your community. You've been able to better the land around you and you've been able to educate people on how to better treat animals and treat the land. Um, So I think that's pretty awesome. So I wanted to highlight that before we got into the negative emissions. But, you know, for anyone listening in, I think that's such an important thing. It's not never too late to pivot your business. You're the third generation in your family to have your farm. And you could have said, well, we've done it this way for 100 years. Why am I going to change it? But instead, you said, no, we need to change it. This is the right thing to do. And you stepped up and led that transition. Uh, let me comment on that. So, uh, uh, actually, I'm the fourth generation uh, to manage this farm. But my daughter, I have two, I have three daughters, but two of my daughters and their spouses are in their early 30s, and they're, they're here with their spouses. Uh, now in management, running the family, running the farm. And those two daughters have three grandbabies who are the sixth generation. And they hadn't helped much yet because they're still uh, just getting potty trained. But we've got high hopes for that. So uh, two, two, two or three comments. Uh, one is, you know, I was in the 40s, that's right. And really the timing for me was a blessing Uh uh kind of a perfect storm. You know, I was getting disen- disenchanted with uh, the industrial commodity model. And it was when people were first really focusing on better, you know, like organic vegetables and grass-fed beef. It hadn't really caught traction. It was, it was starting to see the light of day. And, uh, and I should say that, uh, uh, you know, I, I said this was doing with bank debt. Now, I, I did inherit a nice farm that I was able to leverage at the bank. And uh, had I not had that, I would not have been able to make the transition. But the time was very good. Uh, I, I've never borrowed a penny in my life, and I borrowed about seven and a half million dollars over a six or eight year period to, to build all that processing capacity and do all those things we did. And, you know, if I'd started in my 20s, it would have been too early. You know, I would have missed the window. Uh, if I started much later, the space might have been filled. So the timing, just through the work of God, was, was really spot on. And uh, I, 
Yeah, I certainly can't take credit for planning that. That's just the day it happened. But if I hadn't done it, I'll tell you this, if I hadn't done it, I would have probably been the last generation on this farm. I don't believe my daughters, my two daughters and their spouses would have come back here to the industrial farm that I had run the first 20 years of my career. If I can add to that real quick, one one thing that's also very important for entrepreneurs is it can be a pretty lonely space to make sure that you have really quality mentors and people helping you along the way, but you were really going at something new and going at, at it alone. And how did you, how did you achieve that knowledge or how did you keep at it? Well, it was, it was a work of passion. I, was, I really wanted to, to, to change the way I was farming. And, and uh, uh, you know, as I mentioned a minute ago, you know, today there's a, a book on regenerative agriculture that comes out every week. And just everybody's writing books about it. And there's some really good books out there that some out there that aren't too hot, I tell you that. But, uh, when I came along, there were no books. It was it was figuring it out, and uh, and today there's a book called uh, Dirt to Soil. It was fantastic. You know, anybody if I had had a copy of that book uh, 25 years ago, it would have saved me a lot of anguish. I'm making note of that. I'm going to have to read that book. Uh, I recommend it. So, Will, um, you were talking about um, the negative emissions uh, from the farm. Do you want to dive into that? Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to. This is one of the things I'm most proud of these days. And uh, before I do, uh, let me assure you that Will Harris, a 40-year-old Will Harris, didn't walk outside in the 90s and say, huh, think I'll change the way I farm and pull carbon out of the air and put it into the soil and help mitigate global warming. You can bet that did not happen. Uh, what ha- what did happen is, uh, as I was working through my animal welfare program and developing it, it caused me to look more critically at the land, and I saw that the land out in my fields was a dead mineral medium, but the soil uh, in the edge of the woods was a living biological matter that was just teeming with life. And I can remember thinking, man, I wish all of it looked like that. And given thought to how come this looks one way and that looks the other way, and the answer was uh, chemical fertilizer, pesticides, and tillage. So, uh, you know, once I figured out those were the problems and I gave them up, we started the process of healing the soil. And over the next 20 years, uh, we moved that, uh, I'm going to talk about organic matter in the soil. Now, organic matter in the soil is not all that matters. There's a lot of things that matter. The microbial activity, the water holding ability, the, I can go on and on. But organic matter is fairly easy to measure. That's like the speedometer. 
So we'll talk about it. But over the starting of the mid-90s, over the next 20 years, we moved the organic matter in the soil from less than one-half of 1% to over 5%. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but let me put it in perspective. One inch, uh, I mean, excuse me, 1% organic matter will hold over 20,000 gallons of rainwater. And that's, a, that's an inch, a little, a little over 20,000 gallons of rainwater is an inch of water into rain or an acre of land. Wow. So if you've got if you've got a half percent organic matter, your land will absorb a half an inch rain event. If you've got five percent organic matter, your land will will absorb a five inch rain event. And I'm in the Gulf Coast and we get five inch rain events. So uh, you can see what that what that would do to making your land more drought resistant. But what you're talking about, uh, the study that was done, is what's called an LCA, Life Cycle Assessment. And uh, we do business with uh, Epic, a uh, little meat bar company out of Austin, Texas. And we provide them beef and pork and turkey and chicken. And Epic was bought by General Mills, and the vice president of sustainability for General Mills came to visit White Oak Pastures and made me an offer. Uh, he was a little nervous about the regenerative claims that we were making, or Epic was making. So he offered to pay for this very expensive $80,000 life cycle assessment. And the deal was, I didn't, you know, I didn't have eighty thousand dollars to pay for that, but he did. But I had a farm, and he didn't. So the deal was, he would pay for it, and I would uh, cooperate with the engineers, and uh, we both owned the data, the information. So he paid this environmental engineering, uh, internationally acclaimed environmental engineering outfit from uh, Minnesota called Qantas to do this really painful study. I mean, it was, it was, it was excruciating. And uh, when it was all over, it, it showed that White Oak Pastures is a carbon sink. For every pound of grass-fed beef that I produce, we sequester three-and-a-half pounds of carbon dioxide equivalent that comes from the atmosphere. Greenhouse gas is uh, breathed in the plant through photosynthesis and deposited in the soil to make the soil. That's where the, carbon, the uh, organic matter in the soil is built. That's how it's built. So it's a really beautiful thing, and we're, it's, 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 it's really pleasant for me to know now we're actually part of mitigating climate change. That's incredible. Megan, do you have some questions? Oh, I'm sure this is a very lengthy process. I, my, is, there, is this something that, that they check in with you habitually or annually so that you can see areas that you can continuously improve upon? 
well, we certainly are continuing to improve upon it because we're still uh, practicing. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the, the I'm very proud of the results of that assessment, but it did not surprise me a bit. I mean, I couldn't, I could not quantify how much carbon we were putting in the soil. But I certainly knew we were putting carbon in the soil. The land's not the same color it used to be. It's darker. And the uh, when it rains hard, not nearly as much runs off, and the little bit that runs off is not muddy. It's, it's, it's just like we pee. Uh, you know, I knew we were doing it. I just didn't know. I couldn't prove it. It was anecdotal. I didn't know how much I we were doing. Uh, as far as... Uh, I mean, no, somebody would have to pay for another $80,000 life cycle assessment to, to continue to, to measure it. But now we do monitor it. Uh, have, you, have you ever heard of Savory Institute? Oh, yes. I was going to ask you about that, actually. <laughs> Please, if you, right, if so you can speak on that, that'd be wonderful. Yeah, sure. So Alan Savory is an 80-something-year-old rancher from Zimbabwe, and um, he is touted as being, and I consider him to be, the father of holistic land management. And uh, I wish I'd heard of Alan in the mid-'90s, but I didn't. You know, he he was already doing the things that – he was doing the things that I'm doing and actually been doing it even longer. So uh, by the, I'd say, 2005 or six or seven, uh, I'd never heard about slavery. And I really thought, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gracious servant, I never would have said this, but I thought I knew probably more about that than anybody in the world as much. But I heard Alan Slavery speak, and he knew a lot more than I did. And it was very humbling. And uh, uh, I, I signed up to become a savory holistic management hub. And I went to Zimbabwe and took holistic management, uh, land management training under Allen. And today we are one of 26 or eight uh, hubs on six continents. Uh, there's two in the Mississippi, us and Michigan State University. And <laughs> we study teach and practice holistic land management. So as part of that, we do what's called uh, ecological outcome verification. We've got a very talented young lady, uh, Jacqueline DeWitt, who works here, who uh, uh, goes uh, out in our pastures and does this uh, ecological outcome verification to ensure that we're continuing to improve the land. That It's incredible. And so, I mean, why only 28 to 26, I guess, would be my question. Is it because people don't aren't looking to go there? Or is it something that it's that hard and you have to make a lot of commitments to do it? So, I mean, it seems like not that many compared to how many farms there are in the United States. Yeah. That's a a great question. It's a very complex question. So here's the deal. Uh, 
farmers are not incentivized to practice holistic regenerative land management. You know, they're just not. Uh, the, the system is built for industrial centralized commodity farming. And the, the farmers who are practicing that are, are, are certainly not bad people. In fact, they are wonderful people. And they're farming the way that their fathers farm, maybe grandfathers farm, uh, the way the land grant universities tell them to farm, the way the uh, biological co- companies, uh, multinational biological and pharmaceutical companies tell them to farm. And the way commodity organizations tell them, the way big food companies tell them to farm. And, uh, you know, they're doing what they're supposed to be. I love what I do. And I don't want to farm any other way. But the risk to reward ratio is better with industrial commodity centralized farming than it is this kind of farming. It just is. And so um, to most people, it's a cost-benefit analysis. Why put in the effort when there's more risk is is basically what it is. But I guess, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I see that as sort of the short-term play. Because to what you said earlier is that if you hadn't gone this direction, it may have been the last, you may have been the last generation um, and the fourth generation of your farm. And because you switched direction, it recreated interest as well as this helped regenerate your land and revitalize the community and all that. So I think one of the things that we're seeing here is that there's this very, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs have it, is there's that very short-term vision of the the money now and less risk now. And, and obviously you want to take care of your family and do what's best for your families. But it's short-term thinking. We're not doing a benefit to our kids or children's children and we're not looking at the long-term sustainability of farming in the united states where we are putting carbon back into the soil we are having that richer soil that has more organic matter in it and we're losing the fact that if we're ever going to be you know truly able to feed entire populations um, and we're able to continue to grow crops the way that we're supposed to. If we're robbing the soil and the land more than we're giving back to it, then we're never going to be able to keep up with the populations that grow. And we're certainly not going to be able to continue to grow our own food resources in the long run. You know, everything you said is spot on right. But, uh, but. It's a very long-term, widespread change that would have to occur to move this huge industrial farming complex more towards what we do. And the the incentives are not there to do it. uh, uh, Here you've got um, the big food companies, the, like I mentioned before, the big pharmaceutical companies, the big biotech companies, big crop insurance companies, big equipment manufacturing companies, uh, the all lobbying 
uh, our, our politicians to, to get a farm program, a uh, federal crop program, the, the USDA that is uh, very focused on this industrial centralized uh, commodity system. It's how 90, how many percent of the food is produced in this country. And that's simply not going to change ex- except one way. It won't change. It will not change through regulation. You can believe that. It will not change because farmers just decide, you know, I think I'll do it different. It will not change because the, the, the big companies that are driving it have a change of heart. Nothing is going to change the way food is produced in this country except consumer demand. It's the only thing that will do it. And I don't have, at one point in my life, I thought that that was kind of coming our way. But I don't know if that's true now. The, The big multinational food companies have learned how to greenwash their products. You know, what, you know what I mean by that? To uh, take industrial commodity product and talk about it differently. Yeah. And descri- describe it differently. And that devalues what we do. We are the people that I'm not just white the pastures, but the, the cadre, small cadre of farmers that has, has turned, changed, changed all our farms. Uh, the, the greenwashing uh, uh, tricks consumers, uh, the, the USDA rules are uh, written in such a way that is they're fraudulent. Uh, for instance, you can, uh, a big multinational meat company can, and they do, uh, shop for uh, grass-fed beef in the cheapest markets in the world. And the, even Nambia, even Nambia in Africa, uh, New Zealand and Australia and Uruguay and you know, Brazil now, even England now, they can, uh, a, a cow can be born and raised in Uruguay, slaughtered in Uruguay, brought to the United States on a chilled container and, and marketed as product of the USA on the label legally as long as there was some grinding or cutting or value added in this country. I mean, it's absolutely fraudulent. And what you're getting lies in the face of what the consumer believes they're getting, but it's perfectly legal. So, you know, at the time, I believed that uh, labeling would help us, but that, that, is not going to. There's a time that I believe that certifications would would work for us, but that's not working either. Uh, you know, the, there's, there are some very good certifications out there, but there are certifications for every shade of gray, from snow white to smut black, and a uh, commodity producer and just shop and find a certification that fits what he's doing and not change anything, put the certification on the label, and the 
busy, harried consumer says, oh, good, that's, that's got, that's labeled, that's good, that's certified. So, you know, it's, it's not going well for the home team. The only uh, way that it can work for us is uh, for consumers to, to, to develop the curiosity to know their farmer. I mentioned earlier that uh, our timing was right, and uh, uh, when we started changing, and it was, we put together enough of a customer base that knows what we do. They may not have been to our pastures, but they kept us up with us on social media and our website. And they know that they, we've got cabins on the farm and a restaurant on the farm, and they can come here anytime they want to, and people do. They're there. They're consumers on this farm seven days a week, spending the night and taking tours and looking at everything we do from pigs being born to cows being swallowed. They can see it all. And if the consumer is willing to know his farmer, then he won't get tricked. If he's not willing to know his farmer, he will get tricked. And I really want to dive in this because I think it's it's so important. And it and one of the things is what you said is the consumers. There's how many consumers out there? There's consumers in the audiences. We often trust things because they're said or they're stated versus trusting ourselves to find out the whether it's true or not. I think we do that a lot in both society and in our food is that we don't have the curiosity to question whether what's being presented to us is true or not. And to your point, that means knowing your farmer, that means education. That means educating ourselves on where our food comes from. That means educating ourselves on, you know, how our food is made or where it's made or what country it comes from or what those certifications mean. You know, buying something that's labeled organic, that's, that's great, right? Like we, we, can say that it's organic and it's natural, but is organic the same as sustainable? And is and what really does that mean? You know, there's certain things like that where we blanket market terms over food to sell things like you said, or greenwash them was the term you used. But how do we as consumers educate ourselves, educate our children so that maybe if it's not this generation, maybe it's the next generation or the generation after that starts to fix this because we're going in a direction with food that isn't sustainable. This isn't a long-term solution to the way we're doing things. And, you know, Will is 100% right in that the power is actually in each one of the consumer's pocket or in our pocket as consumers. That money in our pocket and how we buy our food determines how people are going to change. It has to be a pull through. We have to pull it through as consumers. Or he's right, as long as there continues to be profit in it or um, regulation for it or compensation from the government um, to do things in an industrial way, no one's going to change. The businesses aren't going to change. We have to demand it 
um, as you said, customer or consumer demand. We have to demand it as consumers the way we shop, the way we look at things, the way we go online. You don't have to only buy things from your grocery stores. You can buy things from local farmers markets and go out there and get to know the farmers that are producing the products. You can go even look up White Oak Pastures, look what they're doing. They have all sorts of things that are supporting what they do. We talked about the soaps. We talked about, you know, the hides. We've talked about the food itself. And you can go online there and you can order from them directly. You don't have to go to the grocery store to find their products. And so, you know, that's some of the things we're talking about. And if you want to look that up online, it's whiteoakpastures.com. And so that's what we're talking about as consumers and what Will's talking about is we are empowered. We can make a difference, but we've got to start with our individual decision-making every time we go and buy or consume food. Well, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, uh, with uh, I, I wrote something that uh, my, my daughter put on the blog and Instagram and all that Facebook and all that stuff. I don't know how to do, but I wrote it. And, uh, it was about, and I got a lot of flack for it, but I stand by it. It was about USDA certified organic. And my statement was, and it's the truth, and I can show it to you, some of the most degenerative land management I've ever seen in my life was on a farm that was USDA certified organic. You know, the... Uh, uh, it's it's legitimate in that I'm sure they didn't use any chemical uh, fertilizer or pesticides or GMOs, but the actual land management was horribly degenerating. Uh, big big huge track tractors just chewing up the land, cultivating it, killing everything. Death by cultivation is what I called it. There are some wonderful. USDA certified organic farmers. My, my land is USDA certified organic, but I don't put it on the products because uh, it's, it's, it's a low, lower common denominator and because it's not outcome-based, it's procedure-based. There's some wonderful people that are, doing, that are uh, USDA certified organic, but they're prob- those good people are probably selling 5% of the product, and the industrial organic are selling the other 95%. But there's that halo effect that uh, the consumer has thinking about the, you know, the, the nice couple down the road that's really doing it right. Yeah, and I want to point that out also, and um, just as it ties to being an entrepreneur, is there's lots of farmers out there, right? Um, but why the white oak pastures or, or some of the other farmers or dairies we've had on this podcast? Because in the sense of being an entrepreneur, they are going out and looking at this, the problems that we're having, and they're trying to help people and find solutions. And that's really the basis of an entrepreneur. I know there's a lot of terms and people think if you start a business and there's a lot of things and the definition of entrepreneur has sort of been uh, watered down, if you will. But what we're talking about here when it comes to the farms is what Will's doing and what some of the other farmers who have been on this podcast are doing, which is how are you finding solutions to real problems that are in the, that are better for the future and in doing so helping people in your communities in the future uh, for the next generation. So that's what makes 
will a farmer and an entrepreneur. It's not only his ideas and his spinning off businesses and the multi-levels of goods that he offers and has created. That's a part of it. But what it all actually has led to is the bettering of the world around him and helping people. That's the true definition is how am I providing something as an entrepreneur that will benefit people? Or if I'm just an entrepreneur that's making, say, cupcakes... You know, what am I doing for the people that work for me? What am I doing within my community to grow those people? And what ingredients am I using in my products to have even even further betterment of the communities and the world and so on and so forth? So that's sort of what we're seeing here is the entrepreneurs of the future are having to solve, we're solving real problems, but we get to do it as entrepreneurs also. We get to do it by passing on leadership, but we also get to do it by passing on this thing of what is best for the world as a whole. And we get to do it through our decisions as consumers, but also as entrepreneurs. So, Will, I have another question for you um, in in what you said. I mean, you're sort of going against the grain, if you will, um, in this process, and you've stuck by it for almost 30 years now. Um, Do you see White Oak Pastures continuing to grow because people are starting to see the interest and they're they're buying more products from you because they see the value in what you're doing? Uh, I feel really good about the future of White Oak Pastures. You know, we came through that sweet spot before greenwashing and put together a, a, a good organization. And I've got two daughters who are in their early 30s that are committed to the business. And I feel very good about White Oak Pastures. I cannot tell you, but I feel really good about the proliferation of more and more White Oak Pastures. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how many consumers are going to uh, be willing to pay a little more for food that's raised properly. I think that I know that many Americans are uh, hopelessly addicted to obscenely cheap food. And, you know, you tell me what percent, there's no arguing that that is the case. You tell me what percent it is. Uh, you know, if it's if it's ninety percent, and I wouldn't be surprised, then there won't be many white oak pastures. If it's fifty percent, then there'll be a number. If it's twenty percent, then there'll be a lot of them. And and I, I don't know that number. I know that <clears throat> again, hopelessly addicted to obscenely cheap food, and. Uh, I just, I just don't feel real good about people. Uh, you know, what we're talking about is you're talking about for farmers. You're talking about asking farmers to give up the tools that reductionist science gave us that takes cost out of production in the short run. But if you're going to do that, then you got to you're going to add cost back to production, and the consumer's got to pay that added cost. I don't know how many of them there are out there. I mean, yeah, the uh, the planet's heating up, and yeah, there's a dead zone in the Gulf, and yeah, we're running out of water, and we're running out of petroleum, and we're running out of you know, we're running out of antibiotics that aren't uh, uh, resistant 
uh, excuse me, pathogens that aren't resistant to you know, antibiotics. You know, we learn out a lot of things, but man, we buy some cheap food. And, you know, you, you, you tell me what percent of the people will, will pay enough to have a, a white new pastures in every ag county in the country. Oh, I mean, yeah, and uh, I I love this topic because I actually was in the grocery store a few days ago. Um, I know everyone's panicking and buying a lot of canned goods and all that, and toilet paper, of course, everyone talks about. But a lot of these more shelf-stable goods to weather what they think may be quarantines, right? But what, you know, and in that process, I'm like, huh, I, you know, I see all these carts because I generally try to stay to the outside of the grocery store because that's where all the fresher products are. Um, because, you know, I'm, I worry about, you know, what's in preservatives and all that just for my, you know, my own body and my, my family. But I picked up a frozen mac and cheese that was probably two, maybe a dollar ninety nine, I think. And it was like nine ounces of mac and cheese. And I seriously, there wasn't one whole ingredient on the whole label. Not one thing that was actually grown that you could say, I know what this is or you know, even from a cow. I mean, I couldn't even find the cheese on the thing because it was so mangled in the amount of ingredients and and stuff in there to keep it on there. And so I want to make a point here being in food ourselves is that if you want cheaper food, it really, the more cheap, the cheaper it gets, the less it looks like actual food. It, and the more the less it represents actual food and why you have cheaper items and you can get deals on spinach and stuff like that or sale as they start to expire i really want to make a point of what you're saying in that food that's cheap isn't necessarily much of food anymore in the historical sense and so we've industrialized it so much and try to extend the shelf life so much of food that it doesn't even become recognizable. I mean, I think that's the first step, you know, to get to where we need to change our buying habits as consumers. I mean, I really think that the basis and the first step of it is just reading the labels on the back of the packages. Seriously, because really? we buy some garbage. Yeah. Really, and it, it, it's uh, what you say is absolutely true, but it, it goes beyond that. Uh, so... Our grass-fed beef costs probably 30%, 20-30% more than industrial beef. Depends on how you look at it. But that's pretty close. Our chicken costs 300% more than industrial chicken. I mean, they're both chickens. But I can tell you, the way we raise chickens, uh, it, it costs us $4, a little over $4 a pound. That would be... Uh, like sixteen or eighteen bucks for a four pound dressed chicken. To to raise it and slaughter it and put it in a plastic bag in Buffton, Georgia. I see chicken, whole chicken on sale for a dollar a pound. Now, I don't know what you gotta do to raise well I do too. I know what you gotta do to raise a chicken for a dollar a pound and it's not pretty. But both of them are chickens. So um and I'll tell you this, we lose money raising chickens. You know, we we raise some chickens because people that buy our beef and pork and lamb and eggs want chicken as well. But I had to, I've had to cut back dramatically on the scale of my chicken production because 
you know, I got to get, I can get $20 chicken to break even. And not many people pay $20 for chicken when they get a $4 chicken. It really makes you wonder what they're feeding them. I mean, I, I, I know the answer, but I really want to ask the questions to the audience just takes a second and contemplates what the difference is between a dollar chicken and a $20 chicken. And it's really, you know, it's not this simple because both run your car, but it's the difference between regular gasoline and premium gasoline a little bit. And if we keep lowering the gasoline standard on one side and increasing on the other, your engine's never going to run as well. And it's a very simple, not exactly direct analogy, but this is what we're saying here is not, you know, whatever that chicken's running on that makes them a dollar, you're then ingesting that and you're running off those same things versus what Will Harris is doing at White Oak Farms, or White Oak Pastures, excuse me, is what he's putting into the chickens and what they're eating and then that's translating into energy in your body and how you feel. And I really, I encourage anyone to do an experiment on this podcast, which is why I wanted Will on here, is just experiment. Try the try how you feel by changing your diet for a week or two weeks to the same food you normally eat, but do it in a healthier way or do it in a more sustainable way and see what happens to you. Because I know what happens to me. I'm more focused. I have more energy. I can exercise more. I'm more productive at work. I'm less tired in the afternoons. I mean, so on and so forth. But you, you've got to do it yourself. You know, me saying it here and telling someone this, you know, it doesn't really matter. But you've got to go see that there's people out there like Will Harris who are willing to make the effort on the farming side to do it. We've just got to go test it ourselves as consumers. And once you feel it, once you see it with your kids, once you see it in schools and we sort of clean ourselves, what I'll call it, in terms of eating healthier through choosing the same things we would normally eat, but raised better, uh, more humanely, um, as Will talks about, and have better land management on the farms. There is a difference. Those crops are getting different nutrients out of the soil. The animals are eating differently, and they're ingesting things that are better for them naturally. And the way that they're moving and rotating on Will's farm has a difference in the way that meat is and the way that it's produced. You know, the chicken, you know, is just an example, right? It's, it's, there's a difference between free range, which is running outside and pasture range, which is running outside. But what is it really? Will's chickens are actually living and rotating in his fields. Um, which, so they're getting different nutrients. They're getting a broader diet. They're not being fed the, the same thing always. So that meat, well, you could say it's the same. It, they're both chicken, quote-unquote. One's going to have a different nutritional density than the other, even though if you look at the label, it looks exactly the same. And by that, I mean what makes up that muscle meat or that protein is different. One's fed one thing and one's fed the other. And I encourage anyone to do this if they're ever in Europe. Go to Europe like one of the islands like Ireland or or um, England or Scotland or whatever and try the chicken over there. The chicken actually tastes a little bit like fish because a lot of the industrial farms over there feed the chickens fish meal or leftover parts of the fish that they don't eat. They grind up and feed it and the chicken has a distinct taste of fish. So that's what we're talking about here. Whatever they eat is passed through to the chicken and ultimately passed through to you. So I don't, 
you know, I just want to emphasize Will's point because he's taking the time to be on the podcast, and I really believe in what he's saying, number two. And for me, um, as a as a company and where we're going as a company is how do we help our clients and ultimately their consumers become more aware of this also so they start, you know, looking at this. And then the podcast is how do we help entrepreneurs well, this is where the world is going, you know, and it takes all of us making these changes to go in that direction. And we got to do it together, right? We talked about being a consumer, but we also talked about being an entrepreneur. So, well, as we start to wrap this up, I wanted to make sure that I gave you enough time to um, talk about anything else that you wanted to talk about as well, um, that you thought was important for people to know. And I also wanted to give Megan to ask any questions that she has. So I'm going to be quiet for a little bit and let you guys talk. And, and as we wrap up, um, I will close off the episode. Uh, I think you've covered it. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here. Uh, there's, uh, you know, our website, whiteoakpastures.com, will tell you a lot about uh, what we do. And if you, uh, we have a newsletter that my daughter and others put out. I urge you to sign up for that. And, uh, and, and feel free to ask questions. You know, we, transparency is it, 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 the, the greenwashing that we talked about. The only weapon that we have is transparency and authenticity. So we welcome the opportunity to ask for questions and show people what we do uh, because we don't get that opportunity to greenwash and wash us away. Yeah, I agree with that uh, 100%. And Megan, do you have any questions before we wrap up? I'm not sure if I have any specific questions for you, Will. Just, I guess, general comments on it's it's fascinating to hear what you're doing and greatly appreciate that transparency because, like you said, um, the work that you're doing, it's it's replicable and it is valuable. All of the benefits that you listed from this type of land management have so many impacts on all kinds of communities and, of course, the climate is dramatically different across the country. I know the ranches in California, for example, that practice similar land management were able to weather the drought much better than others. And as California enters another drought, it's likely that we'll see similar information. As, as all of us are consumers, and many of us do look at our nutrition facts label, And when we look at the price tag in the store and the sad reality is a lot of these benefits we're talking about for animal proteins aren't reflected on the nutrition facts label, but they certainly aren't reflected in the price, like you said. So I do hope that we are able to bring some of this knowledge more into the modern and wide consciousness of the impact of quality soil and what that brings and not just animal products but our vegetables and fruits it's dramatic so i'm not sure how we bring that education to the consumer but as we look at ourselves individually and then put pressures on our school systems for feeding our kids well and teaching them about schools 
processes like and um, yeah, processes that white oak pastures are bringing are invaluable and amazing tools to help us not just sustain our agriculture and our environment, but to definitely bring it into something that's more preservation and, and regenerating the land. So definitely appreciate your time and how open you are with sharing where you, you came from with uh, conventional practices to today. And I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you all for having me on today. Well, and and as we wrap this up, one of the things I really want to encourage as food and beverage entrepreneurs, and there's a lot of people that are currently in the education system or deciding whether or not they want to become food and beverage entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast. So here's what I challenge you guys with if you're listening in, and even existing food and beverage entrepreneurs, is take a second to step back from your business, pause, and look at where you're sourcing your products from. Look at the sourcing that goes on in terms of what's going into it. You know, and I know we get caught up and it's a day-to-day grind and we're trying to make money and make ends meet and support our families. But I really encourage you guys, just as a good mental exercise, to take a step back and look at how you're sourcing your products for your business. That's one. Number two is, I think just out of curiosity's sake, to see once you see the sourcing and where it comes from and even the possible farms, which may be pretty hard if you don't know and you're just getting it through a broadliner. But how are there broadliners out there that make it transparent for you so that you can help realize it? You can demand that from them, which adds that transparency. But really going to places like White Oak Pastures or some of the farms that you are sourcing from and see if you can get an understanding of how those farms are, are producing those products or growing those that produce. I think that there needs to be a curiosity there. And just like we talk a lot about on the podcast of investing in the next generation and being leaders and being role models for the next generations, because that's who we employ, um, especially as entrepreneurs in food and beverage, we employ a lot of young people. But on the other side is how do we gain knowledge and start doing the right thing from the sourcing side, what's best for the land, what's best for the environment, what's best for the animals, so on and so forth. And how do we start making conscious decisions about that as food and beverage entrepreneurs? Because we do have a lot of cogs in the wheel. And in the process, as Will was talking about, in our restaurants, on our labels, on our packaging, how do we then promote those practices? Because we also have that power to help educate the consumers as food and beverage entrepreneurs. We have the ability and we have a captive audience where we can start educating them. Why? It's not going to make you more profit. Potentially, maybe it'll add more customers because you're doing more than just serving them food. You're doing more than just creating an environment for memories, which obviously is important through food. But if food were a vehicle by which we try to better the world, how are we bettering the world by educating the people that are buying our food? You know, we have a lot of control over that, and we have a lot of opportunity as food and beverage entrepreneurs to be the forefront of that education because they aren't going to do it in schools, and they aren't going to do it in um, in the universities right now. We're just not there yet. You guys are forefront with the consumers. So... I'm 40 years old. The likelihood of me going back and getting another degree is pretty unlikely. So how am I going to be educated through someone right in front of me? And how am I going to encourage my kid to be educated or encourage my kid's education 
um, universities or schools to educate in this manner. I've got to become educated myself and talk about it. And the only way I can do that is obviously through this podcast, but also through, you know, the places that I shop. So if I wasn't in the food and beverage world, how would I be educated on it? And that's a chance for every food and beverage entrepreneur to help people and provide solutions beyond just making food um, and beverages. So thank you everyone for listening in. Thank you, Will. Uh, thank you, Megan, for co-hosting. Um, I look forward to having both of you guys back on the podcast. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, everyone, that's a wrap and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.